On this episode of the Three Beers, Two Guys, One Movie podcast, we give our marquee picks for our favorite mythical creatures in film and television. Then we dive deep into Guillermo del Toro's 2006 fantasy film, Pan's Labyrinth. And then we spin the wheel and give our ratings and give our pick for next week. So let's go. One movie podcast, the always fun, always entertaining, always slightly buzzed movie review show. I'm Matthew Scott, and as always, I'm joined by Mr. Rod Budman, Mr. Preston Parts, and Mr. Joseph Fine. Uh, tonight, we're doing a review of the 2006 fantasy thriller or mystery, whatever, uh, movie Pan's Labyrinth. But as always, we want to always encourage all of our listeners to go and listen to the podcast obviously subscribe download it any type of uh platform that's available we're available everywhere and if you write us a review we'd really really appreciate it it helps us so much uh, but before we get into pants labyrinth we always like to do our top three marquee picks and this week we're doing our favorite mythical creatures in film and television since like we said pants labyrinth features a lot of mythical elements to it so what we're going to do, we're going to kick it off with Mr. Rod Budman, your top three mythical creatures in film and TV. Go for it. All three in one go? Yeah, go. Uh, just do, you know, list your top three and then talk about your favorite one. Okay. Um, my top one is actually a whole bunch of little critters, but... Um... <laughs> go, go, go three, two, one. Go three, okay. two, one and then talk Number about three your favorite. Three is going to be Gremlins and the whole Gremlins franchise. <laughs> <laughs> um, number two is going to be the Fawn from Pan's Labyrinth, tied with the Trey or Falcor from Never Ending Story. Number one is Mr. Tumnus from the uh, <laughs> Just because of the way he walks. <laughs> I feel like you're more in, in, in love with his name rather than his actual uh, his acting ability or his. Uh, I mean, are you a fan of the series, Rod, or do you just like say Mr. Thomas? I love the series, but I mean, the way he walks with like backwards <laughs> legs, like it looks like perfect and ideal for his climate, you know, in the snow. But when he goes into like the little tree and takes off his coat and dusts <laughs> off his hooves, I find it to be very magical. Uh, Joe, Joe, I feel like you're probably. You've probably read that series, haven't you? What do you think about Mr. Thomas? It's a joke, not Rod. Oh, yeah, it's uh, actually haven't, you know, it's been so long since I've read those books, Matthew. Uh, I, I feel ill-equipped to comment, but <laughs> it's, a it's a classic character. Great pick by Rod. <laughs> is, is he the one who feeds her the treats, or does she get the treats from someone else? Like, uh, or 
I forget the name of it uh, because it's also so they have like four siblings, right? And the little, the youngest daughter is the one who enters Narnia first and meets Mr. Tumnus. And I feel like she like doesn't he feed her like the like special Narnia treat, and then like the the youngest brother winds up being infatuated with it, and that's how like the queen like sort of like manipulates him into being part of her little shit. Or I, I could be going way off topic here. I, no, I, you're right. Having, do you remember the name of the treats? Like that's that's really what I'm getting at. It was Turkish delight, I believe. <laughs> oh, you're <laughs> it's <is> Turkish delight. <laughs> uh, no, you're absolutely right. Preston, are you a fan of the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the whole series, or that uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe that book? Yeah, I mean, I definitely uh, enjoyed uh, that series. I love. Budman knows this. We we uh, we <laughs> had quite quite a liking to Mr. Tumnus and found a lot of humor in his. Uh, his just tumness like behavior. Yeah, his walk and just huh. um, uh, kind of brings me back to a, a person we met one time in Innsbruck. Budman, do you remember this person? We gave him the nickname Mr. Tumness. Uh, so it's, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great character. The fawn is very similar uh, as far if we're going <laughs> to talk about the uh, legs again. Like the fawn kind of has that like weird backwards leg deal going on well no i have, uh, I have a point to make about the uh pan's labyrinth versus the line which in the wardrobe series because i feel like it's almost sort of like a a devilish version of it in some sense it's got a lot of similarities yeah uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right so we went okay, on great picks mr Tomness, number one for rod budman a little bit of a surprise i didn't think that would be your number one pick but go ahead preston your number your three two one uh my number three is baby sinclair from the TV show, TV series, Dinosaurs, The Talking <laughs> Baby. I'm the baby. Uh, not, so I've got I a couple you. of nostalgia picks here. Uh, number two would be uh, Frank the Pug from Men in Black. Um, love that. And then number one is, to be a little bit more specific uh, to Gremlins, my number one is Gizmo. <laughs> right, and, uh I love Gizmo. Like, obviously, one of the more adorable creatures you could ever see. Um, but the fact that he's also like uh, a really sweet but kind of mischievous pet and saves the day in all the movies pretty much just makes him that much more badass. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, like from my childhood, that was one of my favorite favorite films. That this, all the series, or the whole series, was really good. But um, Gizmo in particular, I'm pretty sure I had like a stuffed animal. I definitely did a baby Sinclair, but Gizmo was just was just my, my number one there. Um, but any thoughts on those movies, gentlemen? Well, Rod had the Gremlins as, as part of his picks. Rod, what do you think about Gizmo? <laughs> I love him. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, I just read something the other day that like I saw a little meme post or whatever that, that like compared the gremlins to baby Yoda. They just said the gremlins were like a shaved alopecia version of baby like or oh. or, or baby Yoda was an alopecia gremlin. <laughs> and I, I actually had them like kind of side by side. And it looked exactly the real bad the case of jaundice. <laughs> I, I mean, I will say when I when I saw when I first saw Baby Yoda, I definitely uh, there was a lot of gizmo in in those eyes. Huh? Where do you see Baby Yoda? When it, Baby Yoda first came out. Also, he's got like a loft around the corner from us. Are you saying like, do you think 
where do you see him? Like around the town? Are you talking about like on television, Rod? I mean, where have y'all seen him? Baby Yoda? Yeah. And the uh, the TV show, I just forgot it. The whole memosphere, the internet, like everything. He's on the Mandalorian. The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian. Mandalorian. Oh, okay, okay. So, 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 Rod, uh, Baby Yoda is now on. I don't even. It's. I don't think he's actually related to Yoda, but everyone just started naming him that. But he's on. uh, He features in the show Mandalorian, which is on Disney Plus. Wait, Rod. Hold on. How did you miss this Baby Yoda? I don't have Disney Plus, but I just did type in Baby Yoda, and his name is the child, colloquially, the child, yeah. colloquially known as Baby Yoda. <laughs> you need to, uh, I, yeah, you've got a night ahead of you of, of memes and like YouTube videos of yeah, meme how magic. Did you, how did you miss the whole Instagram memosphere of Baby Yoda? It was, I mean, all of last summer, I feel like it just completely passed you by. Yeah. I mean, I know Mandalorian good. Is Baby Yoda in all of it? I mean, he features from episode one all the way through episode ten. But like, he's he's silent, but has some like devious tricks in him. I mean, he's. (laughs) I think what happened is like so. What he was a very very like cute character in a sense. They went back to like the puppeteer thing, which was like uh, what they did in the the original Star Wars. So he looked a little bit more realistic and maybe a little bit more relatable and cute or whatever rather than some type of CGI character. So people sort of fell back in love with them. And they also like dressed him up in like weird instances. Like there's one scene where he's like <laughs> in the morning drinking a cup of coffee, like some old person just yeah. enjoying the sunset, like the sunrise. I, they just put him in like weird situations. He, uh, I almost think they made it. <laughs> no, I, I really do think they like in a very conscious effort made like made scenes to put for just like where people would make memes. I guarantee that was the case where like they were filming that and they go, this is going to make a fantastic gift or meme or whatever. Joe, I mean, are, Joe, you know, baby, are you, are you a Star Wars fan? Do you know Baby Yoda? Do you watch Mandalorian? I am kind of with Rod. On, I knew about the meme, <laughs> of course, but I haven't seen the movie. Um, so I don't want to profess my, uh, my ignorance, <laughs> but I haven't seen that movie yet. Uh, well, yeah, it's it's a it's a TV show, but yeah, no, it's it's actually it's TV pretty show. good. Yeah, no, it's great. They got a bunch of high uh, high quality directors, whatever for it. All right, so we're gonna move on. Yeah, all right, and it's, I think that what it's Daddy Lorian. Yeah, I think it would be great to see a Dad Lorian. <laughs> yeah, all right, talk so. more about that later. <laughs> all right, so uh, we're gonna move on to my picks right here. So I'm gonna do my number three is. I've got Mushu from Mulan. I've got the Oompa Loompas oh. from Willy Wonka. <laughs> and I've got... Oh, my God. They're mythical creatures, I feel like. They're not just... I, you know, I, should, I love that pick. They're not okay. just short people. And then I've got number one. I've got Dobby the House Elf from Harry Potter, which uh, that's more of a pick for me, like reading the novel or the, the books rather than the TV show. I mean, the, the movies or whatever. But <laughs> he's just sort of a concept the whole series. He's such a lovable character. He's, all, he's such a loyal character. He's actually kind of funny in some ways, but he just sort of like develops into this like incredibly powerful character, but also incredibly innocent person the whole time. And it was such a heartbreaking, like if you, especially if you read the books, it was really heartbreaking to see him sort of die in the last, what, last movie, second last movie, whatever. I know Preston, yeah. Preston, you've seen those. I know, I don't think Rod's as familiar with Harry Potter as some of uh, the other ones. <laughs> oh, Rod, are, are, are you want to talk about Dobby? 
I love Dobbin. I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. Definitely, I read the book. <laughs> uh, I, I, just ahead. let it be known that uh, if you know the actor Toby Jones, he played Dobby. Uh, if you look him up, you'll recognize him. I just think it's really funny that that's who. Played well, go him. ahead and tell us who Toby Jones is for those for uh, those of us who aren't as educated and people that do CGI. You know, well, acting he, or whatever. I mean, he's, he's a British actor. He, I think his biggest role was in Capote. <laughs> um, but he's definitely, he's just kind of one of those like character actors. He's really short. Um, he's got like that fit. It's like a, I always, when I look at him, I think of, I think of like people like Paul Giamatti. Just got like a really noticeable face. Uh, he was in Jurassic World, Captain America. He plays like, uh, kind of plays a bad guy in Captain America and in Jurassic World. He's like the, uh, I think he's the scientist in Captain America. And then in Jurassic World. Oh, that was, guy? Yeah, oh, he's shit. the guy so, who's like, he's auctioning off the dinosaurs in yeah, Jurassic World. Yeah, he's like pretty old. For some, I mean, obviously, Dobby, I have no idea what this age is. He's sort of an ageless creature in some ways. But uh, you'd almost think, for whatever reason, just because of his demeaned diminutive size you'd almost think that he'd be played by a younger person but no that's actually kind of fun yeah a 60 year old man is voicing this little elf (laughs) yeah i don't know why i find that hilarious um all right so we're gonna round up the marquee picks joe you get to finish it off your three favorite mythical beasts all right gentlemen number three i'm gonna come in hot right on the heels of a harry potter pick and i'm gonna say hagrid the giant is my third (laughs) favorite mythical creature um Dave schools, lovable uh, <laughs> West Country accent for you Anglophiles out there. Um, and then, okay, so number two, I'm going to go with the werewolf from American Werewolf in London. That was one of the first movies I saw when I was a little kid that scared the bejesus out of me. Um, classic scary movie. Great pick. Uh, John John Landis uh, directed and written. And all right, so number one, I'm going to go with the Killer Rabbit from Monty Python <laughs> and the Holy Grail. Fantastic! The what Killer a shocker! Kyer Banog. All those have sort of an English uh, English pick to them, Joe. They do. Uh, they do have a little little uh, <laughs> little limey taste to that. <laughs> Uh, the, the Killer Rabbit, though, is definitely one. Like, I don't know if it's underrated or not, but there's so many classic scenes in Monty Python's Search for the Holy Grail. But that one is one of my favorite ones because it features the holy hand grenade, which to me is like one of those like uh, the the reading off of like the the script of how to uh, what to set it off. I think is one of the funniest things oh, yeah. ever. I think that's the funniest scene in the whole movie, <laughs> like the, the instructions where it's like just <laughs> yeah, the parody just, of the Old Testament. Bible verses for the, uh, the the book of armaments is <laughs> is absolutely classic. No, yeah, it's 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 it, holy hand grenade of Antioch. That, yeah, it's that like juxtaposition between being completely silly but also in like high English. That sort of they play off each oh. other, right? So like, yeah, it's just it's so perfect and so funny. <laughs> and if you ever remember like any of those Old Testament verses, they're always listing like 18 things. And it's like, they start talking about anchovies and breakfast cereals and sloths and shit. And it's, it's, fucking, it's amazing. Uh, it's good stuff. But you could almost have your, I forgot, I, I completely even forgot about that whole movie. But it, what was the name of John Cleese's character who plays that sort of horned beast who sort of leads them to it? Like he could He's be your Tim favorite. He's Tim the Enchanter. 
It's in the enchanter. <laughs> Some looks, people he, call me Tim. <laughs> I mean, he kind of looks like the Fawn from Pan's Labyrinth. He's so funny. I mean, uh, I guess John Cleese, uh, they all play so many different characters in that movie. But that movie, is uh, it really is one of the funniest movies of all time. I love. I can't believe I completely forgot about that. But The Killer Rabbit, absolutely a classic pick. I love, yeah. I love that scene so much i mean when you see like they go out and charge it before they actually throw the hand grenade at it and it just sort of like zips around on this like clearly like little line or whatever i mean it's supposed to look ridiculous but it just starts going at their throats and like the blood slices jesus christ (laughs) Uh, i would love to see the behind the scenes from when they're just filming that (laughs) oh absolutely i I mean you they would have to have like so many different like times where like the rabbit was zipping around and they just couldn't lose it. I mean, it's, I, I really, it's, it's so ridiculous and so silly, but that's like what the great thing about Monty Python is. It's like, it, it mixes the complete total absurdness, absurdness, stupidity and silliness with also like top end satire and like, I, I don't say literature, but like really top end writing the sense of how they arrange words. It's so, so good. So, so clever. And they're all like, I mean, John Cleese, I think it's the, I think it's the best, uh, more like sketch comedy actor of all time as far as i'm concerned he's so funny yeah he's he's a legend for sure who which one of them just passed didn't one of them just pass away yeah um gosh um it wasn't graham chapman he died in the 80s uh it was oh it'll come to me in just a second boys they're Um, all getting they're all getting up there in a sense it's all like they're all it's getting a little sad or whatever but like (laughs) yeah i mean they're like in their 80s oh terry jones the um terry yeah that's right yeah yeah. he he had been sick for a while too he wasn't working for a couple years (laughs) i should not laugh at that all right so what we're gonna do on that note (laughs) yeah this is a fantastic way to end that uh the death of a comic legend um so what we're gonna no, do, we're gonna like move... that. <laughs> so what we're gonna do? We're gonna move on to our view of the main movie that we're talking about tonight. It's Pan's, Pan's Labyrinth. This was a Rod Budman pick. I know Rod first saw it in 2006 when it first came out. Huge fan. He uh, and then he invited me to come with him because he was so excited that he'd seen it, and I went and saw it. And that was the last time I saw it. I loved it. Saw it again. Loved it again. Um, so what it is, it's a fancy tale about a young girl who's, it's, it's set in the uh, Spanish Civil War. And so it's a young girl who's uh, with her uh, pregnant mother, doesn't know her father. She's in the Spanish Civil War. She's moving out to meet her new stepdad, who is a high-ranking captain in the fascist regime in Spain or whatever, trying to suppress the rebels' uh, uprising or whatever. And... In doing so, while they're staying in this house in the country, or whatever, she gets sort of, what you want to say, introduced by some enchanted beings that sort of lead her into this sort of mythological quest. I don't want to call it mythological quest, but she she gets introduced into a new sort of uh, reality, new world, or whatever that she has to find. A, she gets what she gets told she's like the princess of the underworld or whatever, and then she sort of has to find a way to complete these tasks to find out if she's gonna what like move i don't say move into there but like rule the kingdom when she goes on to the next life yeah regain her seat her proper throne as the princess of the underworld or whatever <coughs> um so what we're gonna do do you, do you guys want to anyone have some like main point they want to start off with or uh that was a little brief introduction in the movie like anything y'all specifically want to talk about before i sort of get going or anyone really well, desperate to talk 
pressing. I, I did have one question about just the time real quick, the setting, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to Budman. But uh, it's 1944, which I think like that's after the Spanish Civil War, correct? It's five years after the Spanish Civil War. Oh, okay. So I, I, I misspoke. I'm sorry. They're still like trying to overthrow. Okay. Um, okay. The Franco regime. Right. Okay. Right, and so but I, like, there's also some World War Two, like obviously they discussed Normandy at one point. I don't know if it plays much into it, but they're at least discussing it. I don't. I mean, did anybody else catch that? I would defer to Joe, who's definitely the uh, World War One, World War Two European specialist. Joe, did you catch it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Frank. Well, Franco Spain. They were neutral during World War Two. Um, yeah. Right. So like they would they would have been hearing all the news from the Western Front. So you know yeah. during the summer of 1944, so that would have been a big deal for um, the the fascists in Spain. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, Budman. Yeah. What I would just, I mean, just to get back to kind of the start of the movie, is it's directed by Guillermo del Toro, who I think a lot of our listeners will know from Hellboy, but Absolutely. this is supposed to be a sequel to uh, his another film of his called The Devil's Backbone, which is also kind of centered around um, mythological creatures and wartime. But uh, it's a good movie. Uh, Wait, so it's actually supposed to be a sequel. You're saying it's, is it like not a direct sequel, but maybe sort of like an an, an anthology sequel, so to speak, if that makes sense? Yeah, like it'd be like a series of various things. I I think he kind of got the idea, I like to believe, for maybe like the sixth sense, but this is like a lot, I don't know. Uh, we'll definitely get into that, whether she's sort of like experienced a reality or an illusion, because I think there's a big question of that at the end. Um, what I kind of want to talk about, I kind of hinted at this earlier when we were talking, uh, when Rod brought up Mr. Tumnus, I was sort of, uh, I had this written down because I thought it was sort of, like I said, it was sort of a morbid version of the Chronicles of Narnia. So I'll just list out the comparisons and maybe we can sort of go on from there. So both happened during World War II. Uh, this was, like you said, 1944, I guess a little after the Civil War, whatever. Uh, both children are led by Fawns. Rod brought up Mr. Tumnus, and we got in Narnia. And then uh, <laughs> this Fawns, some sort of zombie creeper, Mr. Tumnus, uh, that has sort of like little pet fairies or whatever. And uh, both kids, like all the kids in the, the Chronicles of Narnia, whatever, are both, they're all sort of royalty. Like they're like the forgotten kings and queens of Narnia. And in this series, Ophelia is like the forgotten princess or whatever. She escaped and she died, whatever. She lost her, I forget like the whole complete backstory or whatever. Um, but maybe uh, maybe we can talk about just a little bit. Like, uh, what do you think in terms of like parallels between different fantasy movies, different fantasy novels or whatever? Do you think they sort of grabbed onto different ones and like sort of drew in? That was one that I specifically sort of thought of when I saw it. Um, Joe, what, what are your thoughts? I would, I, I, this is kind of, you know, breaking the fifth wall a little bit on both of these uh, series. But, I, you know, it would seem to me that a lot of these commonalities will come out of children, children's escapism during wartime. Like, they'll, like, a lot of this will have similarities because kids will be, you know, either, you know, in C.S. Lewis's case, you know, all the kids were shipped out of London during the war out to the countryside. And, you know, in Pan's Labyrinth, it's a little bit the same thing, but it's kind of, occupation-ish um 
but it's just kind of like escapism. And it's like, you know, you would yes. go into a room in your house and go to a completely different world. And that's kind of like they're trying to escape the war. So I can see how that they would, it would bring out similarities in the series. Yeah. So that plays into sort of what we don't want to get into this right now, but sort of the end, I think it sort of brings up the question of was this really happening or did it really happen? So it's sort of like an illusion versus reality situation. But it's like Joe said, is that when these kids are sort of trapped into a situation that they don't like, obviously, Ophelia, who's the main character in this, this story or whatever, she was stuck in a wartime, like almost she was trapped in this scenario where she was in the countryside during the Spanish Civil War with a, a stepfather she didn't like and a mother who was suffering from child sickness or whatever. Uh, so she had to, you could almost make the case that she was sort of imagining all this stuff to happen because she didn't like the reality she was in. Uh, so do we want to answer that question right now? Do you, do y'all think well, the whole situation was real or, or do we want to move on before we get into that answer? Who, Budman? Um, are you saying, do I think that, that like the fog was real? Well, the whole situation. So like when at the end of the movie, when she's carrying her little brother and she's sort of executing that last task of bringing the little brother to the fawn because they need to like, you know, have a little drop of blood or whatever. And then the captain is following her. We have that point of view shot from the captain's point of view. And she's, he sees her talking to the fawn, but he can't see the fawn. Right. So it, it leads us to this question of, is this all an Ophelia's imagination or is it real? Like, can he just not see it? I think it's all Ophelia's imagination and exactly what uh, Joe was saying. It's just that was her immediate way of escaping her reality was making another reality. Yeah. And it turned out, I mean, we'll get into it, but I mean, like you just brought up the last scene. I mean, she saved her little brother's life. Yeah, exactly. So, Preston, what do you think? Uh, I mean, did did you think it was all real? Do you think that he was, <laughs> he just couldn't see it? I mean, that's the main question, right? Um, yeah. I mean, uh, I would love to think that it's real. Uh, <laughs> But I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I have to agree kind of with both Budman and um, Joe here. I mean, yeah, I think there's obviously a reason at the end where you can't, where uh, the captain can't see the fawn. I mean, symbolically, I, I guess it's just to take that as just like, you know, it's more more speaking to Ophelia's imagination and, and her like desire to escape this awful new reality that she's in. Um, being, you know, in this secluded rural area during wartime with her mother passing and she hates the captain, you know, just, I, I think it's, it's, it's supposed to be basically just like her imagination. Um, but I mean, you know, it's a fantasy, it's a fairy tale. I mean, I guess you that's what the adults both, think, you know, <laughs> they, 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 I mean, it, you can see it both ways. I mean, I, I honestly just think like, it's really just presenting to us these two different one reality, one like imaginary landscape where uh, really like she experiences a lot of the similar things. I mean, she experiences uh, death and destruction really in both different worlds. And it's just kind of the same, you know, it's the same themes for her, except you have one that seems a little bit more real to the audience and the other one that's like a fantasy. It kind of, it kind of provides an escape for us as well. But I don't know, it's really interesting. And, and just briefly looking at the devil's backbone, Rod was bringing up. I mean, it seems like there are a lot of similar themes. Uh, to, correct me if I'm wrong, but like a lot of political themes, like a very real wartime setting, 
and then you have a lot of like fantasy imaginary stuff going on yeah that, that, you know that, that has that has similar themes but it kind of provides like this um relief maybe to what's going on yeah, I, I really don't know. I, I'm sort of undecided whether it's real or not. I, I read sort of, uh, I, I read an interview with the director and he sort of said it was real, but he also said it was up to the viewer's interpretation. And then he right. also sort of like said that there are some clues along the way that should tell you how he actually thinks. So it's almost like he was giving every answer that you wanted to hear at the same time. It's real, it's not, it's up to your interpretation, follow yeah. the clues. So it really is a, an ambiguous answer at the same time. <clears throat> I don't it's know. like I, what's in the case in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, exactly. It, who knows? Uh, I, I would. I, I tend to think it's not. I tend to think, like you said, Joe, when you were talking about the childhood psychology and being trapped in sort of a shitty situation, that she sort right. of used her sort of creative imagination to sort of escape in this way. But it led to a great movie. And like, like we were talking about, like that's that one scene where we get from that uh, captain's point of view leads to this massive discussion whether it's real or not so that's probably the point of it in, in general is just to make people think um, yeah because that that now that's like the only time you get that like a viewpoint from someone other than her in regards to yeah the, absolutely you know, the, the fawn and everything else and it's yeah. kind of like oh shit that just happened so that yes. about so it's a little bit of a twist so um let's let's move on we were kind of talking about, i guess i don't want to, that's not symbolism that's more of a theme but uh let's talk a little bit about something that I was thinking, or or as I was watching, I was thinking, so what do y'all make of sort of the heavy-handed imagery or foreshadowing? Um, the captain has multiple scenes, and not just scenes, but like pretty elaborate scenes where he's shaving, like they're, they're very long kind of scenes. Uh, what do you think the point of that was? What do you think he's always, and also there's so many times where he's checking his watch. Do you think that's a character trait, or do you think that was some type of foreshadowing about his death or do you think it was sort of like a character trait about how he's always timing like always uh want to say like uh on time always sort of precise and always sort of like precision oriented and organized and they also show they made a huge point to show mercedes like always hiding that knife underneath her dress all the time and obviously so she sort of stabs the captain at the end with that like that was like three or four times they did that did y'all think right. it was, maybe it was me watching it for a second time and knowing what was going to happen, but as y'all watched this, did y'all think it was too heavy handed? Did you think it, what, what did y'all think about some of that stuff that wound up sort of coming to fruition in the end? Rod, go ahead. Luckily, um, I have a very short term <laughs> will, and um, it was almost like watching the movie for the first time again. I mean, I definitely knew there was, I knew the, the scene with Pascal the rabbit and the captain takes the wine glass to the guy's face or a yeah. wine bottle to the guy's face. Like I knew to like, you know, do that, you know, watch <laughs> it thing. But then there was a lot of stuff I forgot about. And um, I, I don't think it was too heavy handed personally. I really liked the way they showed like, because, I mean, when you're shaving, it's like your most vulnerable yeah. know, moment. And um, I, I really like Mercedes' character. I do think they, the little uh, the little key scene, because there's like one flashback where they showed um, that they could have done one more time, just to ingrain in my mind, because I kind of was like, wait, significance of that. But 
Well, what do you think the correlation between? So obviously there was a bit like uh, the way Mercedes gets revealed to be a rebel sympathizer is that like she was hiding a key that remember they had that big instance where like he's like this is the only key right but then they entered through the door and there was the lock wasn't broken or whatever so there had to be another one and there was also a big deal in terms of how ophelia has to get a key do you think there was any type of correlation between that I, I'm, I'm actually just pulling at hairs here i really don't know the answer i'm just curious do you think there's anything there if, if i may yeah I, I personally think that mercedes was like a pretty high level on a spy for the resistance like I mean, her husband or her boyfriend, Pedro, is obviously in the resistance. And then, like, the resistance group, just to keep using that word, hammer at home, when, um, you know, when she has stabbed the captain, you know, they are immediately there and, like, pick off everybody and save her. So I almost think that, like, they used her to be able to get the key. Like, I think she may have been an elaborate part of the... Oh, no, she's definitely, like, deeply ingrained yeah. in the resistance or whatever. Absolutely. Uh, right, well, Preston, what were you going to say? Well, I, I mean, I, if, if we're talking about, like, the shaving scene, I think it's – I think with the captain, uh, like, when he's – when he has – I think there are two scenes where he's shaving, right? And he's two like or three, and they're, yeah, like, bald. he's clearly – he's clearly a very – like, a perfectionist. He's, like, I think he's kind of vain. He's into himself. And like, he's always trying to look as clean as possible. And I think, you know, maybe, maybe just, uh, Mercedes, like with that knife that she's always hiding, like the way that he, uh, initially is like wounded or in the most noticeable ways is, is on his face. And that's like that, you know, maybe that is some kind of, uh, like, I, I don't know, like kind of dissecting that that vain quality of him and, and going straight for his face like she did, even though she also stabbed him a few other times. But uh, I, I don't know. I, mean, I, I don't know how deep it is there. I mean, I, I just think like that, that might be some kind of a connection. It's like, that's the last thing he would want to happen is have his face get all fucked up. Yeah. He's very, very Richmond. I, I don't know if the vein's the right word, but he definitely wants to look like he's in charge and definitely does not want to look sloppy. So he wants to look organized. He's always cleaned his face or whatever. And so like, a, a, like you said, a huge gash in his mouth would sort of be uh, a huge detriment to him, whatever. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I was sort of toying with the idea. Like you said, I, like I, I, I don't know if it was a perfect sort of foreshadowing moment or whatever, but they did highlight the point that he was shaving like two or three times. It was like, and they were like elaborate scenes of like these like cameras rolling around or whatever. Uh, Joe, what, what, what do you make of like the captain? Let's just talk about him as a character. What did you think? And you can also give like a whole historical perspective. Cause like, like you, <laughs> you definitely know about the uh, Spanish civil war. At least I think you do. Well, I guess a little bit. I'm not much. Um, it's one of those, <laughs> one of those overlooked areas of European history, actually. Not many people realize what went on in Spain in the late, late thirties. It's always, you know, what happened in Poland in September of 39, not in, yeah. not yeah. in Guernica. Yeah. Um, what? You know, Joe, the captains. Joe, can you start over? I think you went out for a little bit. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, right. Okay. Down. Sorry about that, guys. It's fine. Go for it. Um, well, okay. So my thoughts on the captain are, is that he kind of represents the 
the phalangist, uh, I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly, the, uh, which is the political movement of the Franco, of General Franco yeah. in Spain in the late 30s. And um, and so, like, you know, he, his depictions of being very, um, very fastidious with his shaving and, you know, very precise, it's supposed to, you know, evoke these qualities of, you know, fascism <laughs> and uh, German punctuality and you know, trying to get you to associate, you know, the captain, this, this, you know, the killer of the Republican rebels with this authoritarian regime under General Franco. And, you know, it's trying to beat into you, like, you know, that there's, there's good guys and bad guys. and He's clearly a baddie, you know, that kind of deal. Yeah. So, so we were talking, I kind of brought up the watch here earlier. So, he brought up earlier, like on the thing of the first scene, or I, I can't remember exactly, but he talks about how uh, his father died with the watch. Like they, he smashed the watch right when he died, right? So like, so that way his son, the captain, knew the exact moment that he died. Um, yeah. So he's always checking his watch. Did y'all think that was foreshadowing? After that comment, I thought it was foreshadowing, foreshadowing always because like he was always going to die or whatever. And he was always going to like, at least uh, whatever. Uh, I don't know. Like, I think it, it, it can definitely play on both ends. It can definitely say he's very regimented, organized, and always on time. Kind of like Joe was saying that he's very strict, authoritarian. He knows what he wants, but it also can play in a certain sense too. Like, go ahead, Preston. Sorry. Well, I think it speaks. I think certainly there's that. And I think, I mean, remember when he first heard about that uh, story, the guy was saying like, who knew his father? That's how he died. And, uh, but, the uh, the captain was like, no, he, he never carried a watch. Like that's bullshit. Like he was clearly offended or, 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 uh, you know, like he disagreed with that vehemently, but I, <laughs> I think really, I think really like the watch to me just kind of represents maybe his, also his paranoia, like, a, uh, like people are trying to yeah. kill me always. People are against me and I'm always checking my watch because, you know, maybe I do want to like. Cra- I crash it so that it shows the time I die so that my son knows. But I think, yeah, I think a lot of those people, I mean, Hitler was very, uh, was known to be extremely paranoid and always, you know, like, like even not, not just of like the allies, but of like people on his team. And I think leaders in those positions, they're very, you know, they might come off as powerful, but they're really actually small, like cowardly people who are generally uh, protected in so many ways. And so I think, I think him looking at that watch was like, it was symbolism for like, my time is coming. My time is, is, uh, you know, like I'm going to probably die soon. I'm paranoid. No, I, I, I actually, I think you're exactly right. I, I, in terms of there's tons of paranoia, there's tons of things that are like closing in on him. The only thing he can sort of control is being on time. So it's like almost gives him a sense of comfort Joe, am I am I making this up? Uh, wasn't there some like quote about Mussolini, like he was totally disorganized, but the Italian train system always ran on time? Is that, am I making that up, or is that is that false? No, that I think you're you're <laughs> paraphrasing it correctly. I think you got the thrust of the, <laughs> the thrust of, of, of the tagline. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's sort of similar in the same <laughs> sense. Like the, it's like let's control something, and, and I think that's right. So like when you have a rebel uprising coming at you, and you have no idea what's going to happen at least I can control when and where I'm going to be exactly on time or whatever. So, yeah, I think it, it probably, it speaks to a lot of his character. Also, like maybe like I said, foreshadows a little bit of what's going to happen to him. 
Um, those are I just, some of the points. Just, Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, the action of, like, constantly, like, looking at your watch like that, I, I mean, I, I just, it's, like, very OCD. Like, it's a, it is a kind of a spastic, like, like, it almost became, like, second, like, second hand for him, like, muscle memory. Like, I'm always checking the watch and checking it. It's a tick. Yeah, it's a tick. Yeah, it's a yeah. tick. And I, I, I just think that's, yeah, he's, he was scared. All right, so we uh we spend a lot of time on the captain, whatever. Do we want to get to like a, the any anybody have anything to talk about in terms of just the story? Rod, I know you got something to get your hand up. Go ahead, go for it. Oh, uh, I didn't know you were gonna say story. I thought you were gonna end up with any other character. Oh no no go for it. Whatever you want to talk about. Just because I mean I think Ophelia's who uh, Preston, if you could do a little fact check on IMDb. <laughs> of the actress's name i know we want to give her some credit because she was gotcha in my opinion she was phenomenal she's yeah. so good and i'm pretty sure um the movie won three academy awards i don't know if one of them wasn't for um like best child actor that's i'm not sure that's category i'm not sure that's category it should be it really should be ivana Baquero. yeah ivana Baquero. she is fantastic yeah she we can, we can actually we can actually debate whether best childhood act, uh, best child actor should be actually a category because I actually do think it should be. But go ahead, Rod. What were you going to say in terms of her character? I just I thought she was phenomenal. I thought she did a really good job. I'm going to guess she was probably like 13 years old max. 12. Right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> she did a great but, job. She I mean she just. She, she made it very believable, and like I actually think you could tell. I don't know. I don't really know how to put it. Budman, you were oddly suspicious with ballparking that child's age. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say that because I think she's supposed to be playing like an eight-year-old, and mostly, you know, they get like a sixteen-year-old to play a twelve-year-old. Yeah. To, yeah, the, yeah. You think it's a little bit easier for them to portray it than I? Yeah, because they have like a little more mature yeah. emotional perspective, right? Yeah, so, I don't yeah. think Lindsay Lohan at whatever age misses <laughs> at all. Nor do I think Haley Joel Osment could. But that's another movie. Um, all right, yeah. So let, do y'all want to talk about her character specifically, or do y'all want to talk about in terms of like how she responds to sort of being in this situation? We already talked about a little bit that she might respond in terms of a psychological way that she might make up or, or like imagine things. But let's even just talk about this uh, more detailed oriented. So if you're sort of stuck in this situation where you're in, you know, in a situation you don't like, and even if it's fake or real, and you're presented with this alternate reality where some like giant fawn with looks like a zombie fucking goat or whatever approaches you, how would you, how would it affect you? Would you be calm and be like, oh, I want to escape, I, like, I want to escape the reality I'm in? Or do I, like, enter this one? Or do I want to fuck off and tell this person I'm running away? Like, I, I always am curious about this in terms of how, like, kids react to this in movies. Because it's almost two, two terrible situations. So, how would you have responded? Go ahead, Preston. I, well, I just think that's so funny, uh, because one of the first things that, when I was watching, like when she finally sees uh, the fairy, or and then she like starts to go down into the labyrinth and like follows the fawn essentially, 
uh, I just immediately thought, I was like, I wonder if I was a child, if I would follow a fairy <laughs> and then go at night, go down these stairs into a labyrinth and totally, totally chill when I see the fawn. Yeah. Uh, I, I even asked uh, Emily that and she was like, hell no. But if you, you know, hate I mean, the situation you're in so much, you might do it. But like, it's it, like, exactly. you said, like, but it's like you said, I, I don't know. Like I, I would, I think, in terms of like, if you were at a child's perspective, you'd at least retreat back to what you know rather than, but if you hate it so much, who knows? I really don't know. That's what I was asking. <laughs> I, I do love how though, when she does return and she like, she confides in Mercedes, like the things yeah. that she saw, I thought that was a good like element to bring, you know, like made it a little bit more childlike. <laughs> She's, you know, this is real to me. This is what I saw. Yeah. Um, but, I think it's tough. To well, I mean, what is the what is the general question here? Like, would we do this? Yeah, no, I, I just think it's. Uh, I think we're all just trying to like put our heads in terms of like the perspective of the child. Like, how right. would you react to it? And then, like you said, he, she she went and did it, and she wasn't scared. That's cool. Whatever. She's a brave child. Then she went and talked to someone she could confide in, and that person said, uh, "No, that's fake." But then she had the resilience to be like, "No, it's real." <laughs> like, so she like kept yeah. on. You know, she kept with it whatever I, I really don't know it's just it's just one of those things that when i actually this is one of the questions i have for the wheel whatever but we'll just talk about it right now because it is such a weird thing to me like it's a recurring trope at least when in all these fancy movies and novels whatever all these kids almost react so happily to be exposed to a new world which i can understand because they all are a part of a world that they don't like but at the same time it would be such a scary proposition joe joe uh do you have something to say about this are you yeah no I, I, what i would think is that it's a testament to how fucked up the the world around them is that you know they've probably seen their friends get killed they've probably seen their schools burnt you know and you know, if, if I've seen all that when I'm nine years old and, yeah, you know, some mythical fawn comes along and offers me a way out of like, hell yeah, man, let's, <laughs> like, let's yeah. go. Like, that's, what am I missing? That's the difference, though, in this movie versus, like, some other characters, right? So, like, the fawn in this movie, like I said, he looks like a goddamn, like, zombie or whatever versus, like, Mr. Tumnus, like, who Rod pointed out with his pics or whatever, is so friendly, so welcoming some way that you could actually like sort of have a conversation with but, oh he's not scary whatever this fawn looks like the devil incarnate in some ways like he grew from <laughs> bones and like trees and all sorts of shit but yeah like, he's but really she big trusts, too. she trusts him immediately because he's like hey you're the princess i'll do what you want like <laughs> it's it speaks a little bit to like maybe childhood innocence but also i i really don't know like like you said preston when i was watching this I try to put myself in the mind of the child. I was like, if I was 10, 12 years old, I would be freaking the fuck out. But again, I can't also put myself in that perspective in terms of it's the middle of a war. Like, like Joe said, you see maybe your friends die, your schools get burned, your teachers die, like you're moving out. So maybe you really just desperately want that escape. So I, I really don't know. It's just tough to imagine. I think yeah. you hit the nail on the head, Matthew, by combining exactly what Joe said and what Preston said. Like, we had a very much a, uh, at least speaking for myself, I, I think relatively we all had a good upbringing in our environments compared to Ophelia. Yeah, I think sheltered's the right word compared to what she had, right? So she's like <laughs> in a wartime upbringing. We definitely did not experience that. So, like, her imagination is much darker. <laughs> yeah. We 
yeah. the left. The scene with, is that a, I wanted to ask y'all, is that a, and this should be a good real question, it's not, but is that a potato that she like puts in milk under the bed or is that? The it's a mandrake root. It's, it's a mandrake root, which okay. is actually a big, uh, big deal in Harry Potter too. <laughs> 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 no, no, no. I was actually no, no. Sorry, sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to like uh, drop a, a weird fact or whatever. But I, I, I almost wanted to say that because I was wondering if there were like some like I didn't look it up, but if there were some like mythological elements to a mandrake root or whatever. Because if Harry Potter brought it up and this film brought it up and it has sort of similar qualities, I was wondering if that like uh, obviously it has the quality that it looks like a person. Apparently, the mandrake root looks kind of like a baby or whatever. That that's fairly <laughs> real. And so, like, it has some, like, maybe some, like, mythological healing qualities. I really don't know. Well, Joe, it, ha it has it has hallucinogenic properties, okay. right? So it's been used in some cultures for, you know, different medicinal and or religious purposes, that kind of deal. Kind of like a peyote. I love on, Go like, one of the, I think it's the second question here, is do mandrake roots really scream? <laughs> <laughs> but that you is have to wear your earmuffs. Yeah, so like yeah. in in Harry Potter too, you have to like uh wear your earmuffs, otherwise it sort of like paralyzes you or whatever. And then in this movie, it's it, it must be sort of like some similar trope. I, I've I've never really followed it, but it is interesting or whatever that they keep on using this over and over again. Um, all right, so is there any more like stuff you want to talk about in general film before we like move on to some of the wheel questions or whatever? Does anyone have anything specific they want to add? Otherwise, let's hit the wheel. You want to go to the wheel, Rod? It was your film. You got something you're going to add? It. We're going to go straight wheel. Okay. Rod wants the wheel. So what we got the questions for the wheel is, number one, we have sense of a childhood wonder. We kind of already talked about that, but we can still get into it. Number two is, oh, father, where art thou? Number three is, imagine a Chris Berman voice here. It goes back, 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 story. Uh, number four is... American adaptation. Number five is give me some relief. Number six, the Joker. Seven is always the whammy. Nine, I think I pan. I think I pan. I think I pan. And number nine is it's my hands. It's my. It's in my hands. In my hands. Zombie. 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 So that's obviously a uh, <laughs> rip off of the Cranberries famous song or whatever. So and then ten is respend. So. What we're going to do, we're going to spin the wheel here. Can you guys see that? Uh, barely. The wheel, is, the wheel is spinning. Six. Ooh, let's see what six is. All right, the Joker. We already kind of talked about this a little bit, but it's just something I want to talk about with the character in terms of the captain. So the Joker. So Mercedes slices through the captain's mouth, forming a huge smile like the Joker story in The Dark Knight. Uh, obviously, I know it wasn't a reference to it since this movie actually re was released two years before that. But do we do we wish that he had become more manic in that situation? So when this happens, his wife is dead. The rebels are closing in. His face is fucked up. He's stabbed up. And his stepdaughter is kidnapping his son. But he still maintains his sort of like fascist calm nerve or whatever in terms like he doesn't actually become like a maniac. Do you think in that situation, like we should have had a little bit more like character development in the sense like he should have gone crazy? Whoever wants to answer uh, for it. I'll just say again, I think it goes back to like he's a very narcissistic person and his his first like inclination 
wasn't really even to like run after her, although he kind of briefly does. It's really, he wants to go back and fix his mouth and like yeah. sew it together so that it looks good. Uh, even though like they're under attack, like, you know, he's also got other stab wounds. I don't think he really deals with them. It's just, yeah, it's like another example of a lot of leaders. Uh, well, a lot of leaders in general, but yeah, just super narcissistic. Uh, you know, I really don't know. I feel like it was almost leading up to this moment to where like he was supposed to crack as a character, but he actually didn't, right? So he's always, like we talked about earlier with the clock, with the shaving, like Joe said, he was always sort of under control. He was regimented or whatever. I, I almost, this is why I asked the question in the sense that like we had all this buildup into things going wrong and like he couldn't control it. I almost like thought he was going to turn into a maniac and then he didn't. Uh, that's really what I was getting at. Did anyone else think that, or what would y'all think, Joe, Rod? Before we move on, I mean, I would say that he kind of showed. Um, yeah, no, I think you're right. I think that I'm surprised he didn't like yell out loud. Yeah, like it might make that worse. <laughs> yeah no yeah it, it, it felt like there should have been some like almost climactic That's moment where he actually like got pissed off but he really never did joe what were you saying no yeah i think that he's always trying to be in control and that's how he exuded that and you know it was kind of anticlimactic in that sense for the you know he never gave the audience what they wanted yeah right which is these are like like narcissistic tendencies like i have to be in control i have to be controlling everything and including that, that, that awesome too. face even in the even in the end he wanted to ask like the people that were just about to shoot him in the face they were like he was right. like tell my son when i died and they're like what no absolutely right not. Like, he still tried to control that moment when he was about to get shot and killed so it was like it was and it, like you said Preston, it's very narcissistic that's a huge that's a huge scene too i mean like that's like the yeah the only time where he doesn't get to get what he wants yeah what were you saying say Rod? Were we spin I was just saying that was definitely my favorite line of the entire movie is Mercedes goes like, no, he won't even know your name. And it's yeah. Pedro mm -hmm. right here. And it was a very graphic movie. Um, it was. Um, like the, the wine bottle scene when the guy's like stealing rabbits. Or, he lies about killing a rabbit, I think. It's just very graphic. Um, yeah. But not too graphic, it was realistic, which. All right, so we're going to move on. Wheel number two, question. Nine. Okay, so let's see what nine is. All right, in my hand. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not going to sing it, but this was basically based off the uh, song Snobby by the Cranberries. So it's in my hands. In my hands, zombie, zombie. So obviously, uh, I was talking about the pale man here. Who's uh, there was a classic scene here. The pale man zombie has his eyeballs in his hands. That's where this is coming from. So besides being in the proper place, being your head or whatever, where would you want your place to place your eyeballs? Would you place them in your hands or would you like put them somewhere else? <laughs> uh, do your eye sockets not count? No, that's what I'm saying. Besides the normal place, <laughs> hmm. You can't put them in your hands either, because that's obviously taken. So I would have one in my forehead <laughs> and one in my the back of my head. 
<laughs> oh, dude. That's cool. That's, that wins. I wonder how I like, like that. the vision... How would your vision work with that? Would you like see in split screen, Joe? Dude, like, it would I... be like a 360 camera on one of those new cars. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually that really is really smart. good. Yeah, I was just gonna joke like as a uh, party trick they'd replace. I was like gonna say like my shoulders because I felt like that was like the closest thing you could like do and almost like shimmy to like look or something. Like that. Yeah, you can actually yeah. your hands as opposed to that guy who was very scary. Yeah, Pale Man is not good man. Uh, Pale Man was like a droopy-ass motherfucker from like the YMCA, like a really old guy taking a shot. It was really, really kind of scary and weird. <laughs> it's like he had no muscles or whatever. Uh, that is a question, by the way, but Robert, what were you going to talk about? Go ahead. Let's see you guys. I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I, this is out of left field, but y'all may remember it. I doubt it. But I feel like there was an animation show, maybe like on MTV or in the guy walks just like the guy walks like uh it was oh. it was the um the show where they're made out of like clay like <laughs> majors oh. don't know what I'm talking about are you talking about like the the fights they used to have the clay fights the death yeah. fight yeah celebrity death celebrity match? death match yeah, yeah. celebrity death match like, you know how they they like in the intro they have the clay figure walk that's exactly yeah. how that man like walked down the hall when he's chasing Ophelia after he's <laughs> the fairies and Tinkerbell. Like, like a Wallace and Gromit playmation. Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 I was a little far there, but I thought they walked what? similar just because we're talking about gate tonight. Yeah, I always I always think about when I see that character the uh, the cart the cartoon Ah Real Monsters, which had like a character who would he held his eyeballs above his head like that. Okay. You remember that on Nickelodeon? Ah, Real Monsters? I remember, but I don't remember like the, the specifics uh, of it. Came on yeah. right after Hey Arnold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think so. All right. We're going to move on. We've got two more. We're going to do two more questions, and then we'll wrap it up with the ratings or whatever. The wheel is spinning. Uh, eight. Hell yeah. So eight is. Oh, wait. Uh, okay. So I think I pan, I think I pan, I think I pan. This is a question we actually didn't get to because I wanted to ask this. So pan is a fawn or satyr in Greek mythology and also the god of fertility. And the fawn in this movie helps Ophelia's mother's pregnancy pains. Uh, but the fawn in this movie isn't credited as being pans, as being named pan. But is that by mistake or is it someone else? Because it's called Pan's Labyrinth. That's what what I was talking about so so like the movie's called Pan's Labyrinth but no one's actually credited as being named Pan so what wh who is Pan do we think that's just sort of like some type of thing that's supposed to be ambiguous or not or is like the fawn actual name Pan or like, uh, or like is, I said there's there's some or is Pan another name for fawn or so, I don't know because that's, that's what I'm saying that's, like that's what I'm saying so like uh uh if, in Greek mythology, like so, the name for a fawn or whatever, and, and fertility, a god of fertility is named Pan. I like maybe, like you're right. Maybe it's supposed to be just sort of like incidental or whatever. But I was just curious when you when you hear the name Pan's Labyrinth, but the 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 fawn is never actually named as Pan. Did y'all y'all put that together, or is it? What do you well, think, I Rod? Think the, I think that the oh, yeah. joke too with the Pan is ties it into the Greek mythology. So I think it's all 
you know, it, it's meant to, I think Guillermo del Toro said that it wasn't explicitly named, uh, the fall was explicitly named Pan, but I mean, it's clearly, you know, deriving the motif from the, the, okay. know, the Greek mythology. Yeah. So like it sounds better than being like, like he's, sounds better than it's called like Fawn's Labyrinth. <laughs> right. It gives yeah. you, it gives you a base of knowledge to go into the, I was like, oh, okay, this, guy, yeah. I know what kind of characteristics this guy is going to have before you know without knowing anything about the movie yeah well that makes sense because it's called like this yeah i was about to say that but but i mean you're you're going to talk about the spanish title the title in spanish is just translates to the labyrinth of the fawn oh okay so pan's labyrinth was just like for the american release oh so for like dummies like me who don't know who aren't bilingual so i was actually misinterpreted it well, and I bet I bet he just tried it. He was like Fawn's Labyrinth, Pan's Labyrinth. Pan sounds, <laughs> Pan sounds better. I mean, because it is, yeah, it's, he is the god of like yeah. mountains and whatever, rural, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, no, like I said, like I, I gave some instances why it makes perfect sense, but I just couldn't understand why it wasn't listed in Wikipedia or IMDb, why like it wasn't, like the Fawn wasn't actually named Pan. I just, I just decided to make a little question about it. So here we go. We're going to do one more and then we'll get into the ranking or whatever and we'll finish it out. And Preston will give his pick. All right. So, um, Oh Father or Art Thou? So there's little discussion about who Ophelia's real father actually is. Do we think it's a convenient, convenient plot ploy to make it more ambiguous or are there clues to who, who he really was? Do y'all think his real father, basically, do you think her real father is the god of the underworld, or do y'all think it was someone else? Like, do you like? Do you think it was sort of made to be ambiguous, to like, sort of move the plot along, or how do, how do y'all think that worked? I want to hear Budman on this one. Um, I think 100% that her father had passed, and clearly, in Ophelia's mind, her father must have been a good person, and I, I mean, I imagine, I, mean, I came up in my mind that he probably died fighting in the resistance. Okay. And uh, it was just a marriage of convenience to the Capitan. And that, so her version of heaven or whatever you want to call it would have included her father at the throne. Yeah. So some of this, some of the answers to this is contingent upon whether you think the actual ending was fake or real or not. So it's almost like you, like, like we all discussed, you thought it was in her imagination. And so the reality is her actual father was sort of just a, a rebel that sort of got her mom, right? So like, it's not like her father was actually some <coughs> underworld king, right? So that's what you're basically saying. Uh, yeah, I didn't know it had to be either an underworld king or your own little heaven. Oh no 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 no! But like like I said, it's, it's it seems like it, the way you sort of have to interpret it if is do you it, maybe I'm just thinking in terms of like mythology that I know I don't in terms. He like went on to then like go and like lead a life like Princess Leia. No, <laughs> whatever she wanted to do. Yeah. Joe, did you have some thoughts of this, or were you just waiting on Budman's thoughts? No, man, I, I, I thought Rod hit, hit the nail on the head. I think he got it down. <laughs> Preston, what you think? Uh, I, I, I'm good. 
Okay. <laughs> you know, All right, I, 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 I like what you said, but I, mean, I, I don't, I didn't really think too much, honestly, about the, the father deal, you know? I just, took, right. you know, she said he was a tailor, so I was like, yeah, he's a tailor. <laughs> All right. So we're not even going to spin the wheel one more time, but I'm going to ask one more, one more question and then we're going to move on to the ratings, whatever, because I actually kind of wanted to get y'all sus in this. So number four was American Adaptation. Yes. So this this film is set during the Spanish Civil War. What I wanted to ask is, if an American filmmaker wants to adapt this film with an American story, do you think it would work being set during the American Civil War on some like Southern slave plantation, or maybe during the time of like colonization with like skirmishes with Native Native Americans? Like uh, basically, like how could you see this working? Like obviously in terms of. Uh, in terms Ooh, of American, I got a good one. American history, go ahead, Joe. Uh, I would say that if you got like a little Japanese girl that grew up in Seattle, say, in oh, the Pike Place, Pike Place Market, and then Pearl Harbor happens, and then they've all oh. got to go out to uh, like the you know the internment camp where all the yeah. uh, Japanese Americans had to go to, and so like that's where her you know labyrinth would come or her her wardrobe would be, you know, it would be her living out in wherever and it would be like her missing seattle or what have you i think yeah I, I didn't even think about that i was thinking just in terms of like uh that's actually brilliant i wouldn't even think about that i was just like trying to make stupid direct comparisons in terms of civil war history preston what were you gonna say something i mean that was pretty good <laughs> <laughs> i really like that i mean like you could think of all these different big if we're going along the lines that joe, joe just took you could think of I mean, you, if you want to get real modern, you could probably somehow figure out a way to do it with like 9-11 or, uh, you know, even, yeah, different. I mean, I, yeah, the Revolutionary War for sure. Um, but I don't know. I, I was hoping that you were going to ask. <laughs> Every time you do uh, categories like that, I always think you're going to say like, all right, well, who would play in a uh, English-speaking <laughs> version of this? Well, go ahead. If you have some ideas of that, who, who would you think? Because I couldn't, I didn't want to put anybody on the spot with that. Because I almost wanted to ask who would play the pale man, and I was like, "That's really, really gross." Is like, who would be some naked old man that people would want to see? <laughs> but um, yeah, well, obviously a lot of makeup would be going on there. But, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I think for the captain, I, I, I mean, I actually thought, I mean, I knew it wasn't him, but I. It, he looks kind of oh. like him. I, like Colin Farrell would be kind of good at that. And for Ray Fiennes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and then for uh, Ophelia, I think the obvious choice is Millie Bobby Brown from uh, uh, from Stranger Things 11. <laughs> I think that would be good. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I haven't really thought too much past those two characters. Man. But it would be interesting really to see like who they would pick. I really wanted like just maybe just like a mild like discussion on if if you could see it being set in the American Civil War like on so like a plantation in southern you know United States because I know that uh, President I, one time we went on a uh, <laughs> a dinner date with uh, Doc Ashley we went through some like sort of a <laughs> labyrinth uh, like a uh, garden labyrinth yeah. of some plantation in South Carolina so that's what made me think of it one time I was like oh so like maybe there were some times where like some little girls were scared or whatever we ran through I, I really don't know uh, <laughs> I mean there'd be plenty of 
plenty of space to make some chalk doors. Uh, yeah, uh, for those of for anyone who's listening, still listening, whatever, uh, I just brought up some a character in our own personal life. His name is Doc Ashley. He's a music teacher we had. He's sort of a mixture of like that. Uh, what do you want to say? Like the the antagonist in Hannibal who cuts his face off, and also sort of like speaks like the uh, the the character in Seinfeld who just does the hello voice, right? Uh, <laughs> it's kind of similar to that. Uh, anyways, he's just a crazy crazy person that we had familiar ties to. Rest, so what we're going to do... rest in peace. Yeah. But a, a great man with a great life and also a very talented piano player. So what we're going to do now is we're going to rate this movie uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Rod, it was your pick. Go ahead. You got score of 193. Wow. I love it. Still do. Is that your highest? Is that your highest rating yet? Possibly. Uh, Joe? <laughs> Joe, go for it. I'm gonna say uh, I'm gonna say it was a uh, seven point six. So seventy-six. Yeah, for freedom. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it, Preston. Uh, well, I was thinking along the lines of ninety-three, but I'll, I'll leave that with Budman and just go one below and give it a ninety-two. You're gonna leave Budman hanging with the highest score. Man, this I mean, is like Citizen Kane level ratings here, guys. I'm gonna go this is a great. Guys. This is a great movie. Okay. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> 88, guys. Um, all right. So we just finished the ratings. Uh, Joe. With the, wait, wait, wait. What did you say? What did you I get said it? 88. 88. That's a B plus, which is all the right, highest cool. score in my book. Um, so Preston, this is going to be your pick right now. So what we're going to do now is of spinning the wheel. We're going to just rotate picks. Preston, your pick for the next movie, and then we'll end the show. All right. Since we've got all this symbolism – discussions and all that stuff it got me thinking and i'm gonna go with uh jordan peele's us or any final words for you guys before we completely sign off i know rod always likes to end with his um tagline rod go for it keep on button <laughs> all right preston do you want to keep on poking or you want to just die I mean, let's always keep on poking. Poke on. Poke, on. poke, poke one, poke all.